I don't know if you noticed this morning, but our songs, maybe this was by accident, maybe this was by choice, I don't know. They fit, several of them fit the themes we've been talking about in First Peter, the idea of suffering, and obviously in the song, The Solid Rock, it says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. So in other words, the song referring to that, it, sometimes things are so dark and dim that I feel like I can't see the Lord but uh, the song talks about resting on the solid rock then obviously in the it is well with my soul a lot of times events in our lives don't make us want to feel it's well with our soul and like in that song we have the words though Satan should buffet though trials should come let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. So I think those, some of those thoughts are appropriate as I've been given the task of sort of wrapping up some ideas on First Peter and uh, introducing us to Second Peter. Um, it's no great um, surprise to realize to me, when we look at the Gospels, we have so much about Peter. He seems to be, um, other than the Lord himself, the main focal point as far as people we see in the Gospels. And um, so I would have, in my human ex- expectations, thought, well, if there's anybody who's going to write a bunch of books, it's going to be Peter. And yet, what we really have is these two little epistles. It's the only written record we have of um, Peter's life and ministry and these epistles we believe um, if he lived with the Lord uh, on the earth in the early 30s and as most people seem to agree these epistles were written uh, in the mid to uh, later 60s uh, these epistles are written basically 30 to 35 years after the events we see in the Gospels. so this is quite a time gap and the only only pictures we have of Peter during that time is basically what we see in the book of Acts and up um, up basically to the 15th chapter of Acts at the Jerusalem Council Peter from our perspective drops out of sight um, and of course Paul takes the preeminence from the, that point on in the book of Acts and what um, we're going to see both Peter and Paul mentioned in these epistles so as we just look back a little bit at uh, First Peter, um, one person uh, wrote as a theme, a potential theme for the book, experiencing God's grace in the midst of suffering. And so I think, as always in Scripture, what's helpful for us to understand what's going on is to not just yank it out and read it as if it's isolated from anything else but the book is written in a context it's written in a historical setting and I think it uh, behooves us to to look at what was going on at the time this was written and I think that helps sometimes inform us then as as we look to what's what's being written about and I think uh, in my view part of the context of First Peter is I believe he may have been writing shortly after the death of Paul. And um, and he's 
writing to churches, many people comment, the churches he's writing to seem to be churches that were um, tied more to Paul in that first verse of the book than to what we know of Peter's ministry. And some people speculate it's a group of churches, a group of people that maybe if Paul has just died, Peter's sort of stepping into the gap to um, encourage them because if Paul has been their main source of spiritual guidance and leadership, um, and that's why I think these books are going to emphasize partly the idea of the sure word we have in God's word. Because Peter's also going to go on to mention, not only is he here now to give them a, a message of hope and encouragement, he also, almost as a side, says, oh, by the way, I know I'm going to be dying soon too. And I don't think we maybe grasp how traumatic this may have been. These people who have become believers in that 30 or so years after the Lord's death, you know, the big pillars to them were people like Peter and Paul. And they both apparently die very um, close to each other in time. And there would be that sense of, of the churches going, what are we going to do now? I mean, you know, it's not the same, but it would almost be like if we were in a, uh, a church, the kind of church Jim only dreams of, the big mega church. That with with the pastor who's been there for 40 years and everybody you know refers to you know, pastor in glowing terms and that's been for all those people maybe the only or not only but the main spiritual input they had and that person dies it leaves a hole perhaps and I think there's somewhat of that going on here with the, the uh, soon departure of Peter and perhaps already departure of Paul um I think that's part of the context. And it's not just that they're departing. It's not like they died of happily of old age. They're dying of martyrdom. So the context here, and of course in the whole book of First Peter, as we've mentioned before, throughout every chapter in First Peter, it's talking about suffering. And so if you flip back to Second Timothy, just to get a little glimpse of, I think, the, the context... A lot of people think Second Timothy was written just about the same time, or maybe perhaps just briefly before First um, Peter. And if that's the case, um, these words in Second Timothy, which is considered by most the last book of Paul, this is written just before his own martyrdom. Um, and in Second Timothy chapter four, Paul writes in chapter four. Uh, verse 6 for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come and we're going to see words very similar to that from Peter and he says I have fought the good fight I have finished the course I have kept the faith in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day not only to me but also to all who loved his appearing it's interesting to me, in reflecting back on going through um, Exodus and now Leviticus in the Old Testament, in verse 6 where it says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That idea of Paul uses that Old Testament terminology that his life and upcoming death are like an offering to God. And if you flip back to Philippians, you'll see that same kind of idea coming from Paul. In Philippians chapter... Two, Paul is writing to the Philippians and he makes this statement 
in um, verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, that same terminology. So at least twice here when Paul refers to his death, he refers to it as being poured out as a drink offering, this this terminology of sacrifice and offering from the Old Testament. In verse 17, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Then if you flip in Philippians over to chapter 4, verse 18, he's reflecting on they've sent him a gift. The people of Philippi have sent him a gift in his ministry. And in verse 18 of chapter 4, Paul says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And again, for those of you who have been in Sunday school, that's that same terminology when it talks about these um, sacrifices in the Old Testament, a fragrant aroma. So he's talking to them and saying, this gift you've sent me is along those lines. It's a fragrant aroma going up uh, in essence to God's nostrils. And so they didn't sacrifice an offering like a a goat or a bull, but by sending him and apparently helping him out financially, he says that was a sacrifice, a fragrant aroma. So we have Paul himself has, I think, recently died. He speaks of, you know, finishing the course, finishing his life strong. And I think Peter's going to make reference to those same kinds of things when he's talking to them. In First Peter, he's talking about your suffering, but finish strong, hang in there. And that's always going to be um, any time of discouragement of whatever nature in our lives, always the human tendency is to throw up our hands and say, that's it, I don't care anymore, I give up, I'm just not going to, you know, you know, I don't care about God or people or whatever. I mean, that's always going to be the hardest time. It's easy when everybody's patting you on the back and praising you to, to, to seem strong. It's hard when, when things aren't going so well. Then if you look at Second uh, Peter, that same idea comes through in Peter's words. In Second Peter chapter 1, Verse 12, he's writing to them the second little epistle. And most people think this epistle is probably written, you know, very shortly after the first, maybe within six months or not too much after the first epistle. So it's somewhat to the same people carrying on the same ideas uh, with, with a, some different emphasis. But Peter writes, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in a faith which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in, in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So, um, Paul wrote um, to Timothy and said basically, 
I'm pouring myself as a drink offering. And he, but he talks in terms of joyful. Says, you know, share your joy with me as I share my joy with you. Here Peter's talking about, you know, we, we've often said if, if someone, if we're at someone's bedside and they're dying, often you say, you know, whatever their last words are, you should, you know, take seriously. Well, Peter, in essence, this is his last words. He's telling these people, you know, God himself has told me I'm leaving soon. And so these are my last thoughts to you. I'm going to tell you what I think is important for you to know. And, um, and he not only says that, but he says in verse 15, And I also will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. His concern is, I'm leaving, but I care about you. I want to leave you things that you can reflect on when I'm gone. And I think, again, this is going to take on an importance in the context of, especially in Second Peter, he's talking about, we have this sure word from God. And he's going to go on then to talk about in the book false teachers and false prophets. And I think the idea being perhaps you've lost Paul, you're soon going to lose me. And guess what? There's a lot of people who want to fill that vacuum, but they're false teachers. And so he's going to guide them not to another teacher, literally to God's word itself says, here's where you're going to get your strength. Here's where you're going to grow strong. He doesn't say, I'm anointing someone else to follow me. He says, look to God's word. That's Because as he looks at these people and here says, I'm giving you things that you can call to mind after I'm gone. He's not saying, I've got a protege, someone to take over. So he's guiding them to God's word. And again, we when we look at the context here, um, I think in First Peter we saw the idea where um, Peter speaking to them said in chapter two of First Peter. Let's see. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. As, as we talked about in the book, we have suffering all through it, and he gives the ultimate example of that, of the Lord himself, as an example of suffering, how to live, and, and how for them to live their lives. And in First Peter, the very end of the book, he he says to them in chapter 5 verse 12 I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God and he closes basically with this idea stand firm in it so it's a book all about suffering and yet it's all about God's grace and he ends basically saying hang in there stand firm Times look bleak. Times look bad. You know, Paul may be gone. I'm going soon. You're probably thinking, my goodness, things are falling apart. And as I said, the context of this is in the context of a ruler named Nero. And um, we've talked a little about Nero in the past. Nero was born in uh, the year 37. So basically a little bit after the death of Christ. Uh, Claudius had been the emperor before him. Nero's mom, Agrippina, 
had her third husband was Claudius. So Claudius, in a sense, was the father-in-law um, to Nero. And people think Agrippina, the reason she was on her third marriage, they believe she poisoned her second husband. And then they believe later, because she was quite ambitious, to help get her son to be Caesar, uh, suspicion is that she may have poisoned Claudius. He died suspiciously, apparently, um, young. And um, so Nero became emperor in the year 54. Um, and we think that the, the books we're looking at, Nero was emperor from 54 to 68. He became emperor at 17. And his mother sort of ruled through him. And Seneca, the philosopher, and some other people, apparently in early stages, guided him. But then Nero became in his own right um, stronger. And basically, you know, the only way to, to uh, do things is he basically killed off anybody who he didn't like. And um, he eventually, supposedly, got tired of his mom. So in honor of Mother's Day, the suspicion is Nero um, poisoned his, or had his mother assassinated. You know, dear mom, thanks for getting me to be emperor, by the way, with the knife. You know, whatever. So, so he, the suspicion is that Nero had his mother killed. And then we know that the well-known story that, and this is what I say about the context, people think these books, like Second Timothy and First Peter were written probably about 65, 66, 67, somewhere in that time frame. Rome, the famous fire of Rome was in AD 64. And we all know the story about what did Rome or Nero do while Rome burned? Fiddle. Well, actually, they said he didn't play the fiddle. That wasn't invented. But he thought he was an artist. He played the lyre, like sort of like a little harp thing. And he thought he was, you know, very talented. And he used to go in chariot races, and he loved the arts. And But most people think he was somewhat insane. He became emperor at 17. Um, he committed suicide at 31 because basically the Senate and everybody turned against him. And all his generals basically decided they were going to overthrow him, so he said, well, I'll just um, kill myself. But that's the context that Peter and Paul are talking. This crazy emperor who most people perhaps himself started the fires in Rome. And the thing is because he thought he was an artist, like an architect and all these things. He had his grand plan of what he wanted Rome to be. Well, in order to build this wonderful city, what do you have to do? Get rid of the old part. So supposedly a big chunk or half of Rome burned. He had this idea of what he was going to build. And, um, but he didn't, of course, want to admit that, so the idea is it became blamed on the Christians. So shortly before Paul and Peter are killed, apparently Nero maybe burns down the city and says it's those dirty, rascally Christians that did that. So they weren't um, seen well then. In fact, supposedly the, the last words of, we're looking here maybe at the last words of Peter, supposedly Nero's last words at least this is what people say is what an artist dies in me you know I'm just such a wonderful creative guy and you know the world's going to be lacking without my ability to bring it art and so forth so that that's where Peter's coming from the only thing I can think of even remotely like this is who do we know in history in our history that blamed a group of people for all the woes of the society Hitler you know, you know, from what I understand, he basically 
when you have a society with all kinds of problems, well, it's all because of the Jewish people. Well, in a sense, maybe you had back here in Rome all the problems and strife and the fire. It's all because of those Christians. They're behind everything. So that's the world these people were living in when Peter writes them. And, of course, we see in in First Peter this um, idea we've gone through of five chapters dwelling very much on suffering in every aspect of our life. In, in First Peter we saw the book started out basically describing who the people were and then it ended with uh, the last part of the book and how they should live. And so first we have this picture of their salvation pictured. Uh, we saw in the very first verses of First uh, Peter this idea of we've been... Um, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So in the midst of suffering, he says, you've got this wonderful inheritance awaiting you. And uh, in verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it might, you know, in a way, you know, it's hard, I think, to bear, but he basically said, times are tough. You are suffering, um, but think about your salvation. Think of the grace that's been brought to you. And and for us, sometimes I think that can be hard. I mean, if someone's going through really hard times, you know, I'd have a hard time going up to them and saying, praise God, you know, you've received so many wonderful things from God. But that's in a sense what Peter's saying. Like like I mentioned before, in verse 6 of chapter 1 in First Peter, it said, In this you greatly rejoice. He's talking about the salvation that they have and are going to receive. And he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. It's just interesting even the idea of being distressed. I mean, some of them are being killed. He's going to be killed. So, I mean, you know, if, if you're going to be um, crucified next week, I don't know if I would refer to it to you as, oh, don't, you know, you're going to have a little distress next week. You know, we would probably take it a little more seriously. But then at the end of the book, he uses the same terminology of a little while in verse 10 of chapter 5. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And again, we we live so much for this world. I think we find these words hard because Peter's encouragement is you've got a great promise, you got great promises from God, but that doesn't mean you're going to get out of the hard times here. It's it's in the future. It's when you meet Christ in the future. That's when these for the most part these promises are going to be Come, become real. And I think we find that hard because we want all the blessings now. Where Peter doesn't promise them in any sense it's going to be great now. He says it's going to be great when you meet the Lord. And he says hang in there now with that knowledge that he's given you the salvation. So we went through the book of First Peter. It's interesting to me um, again based on what we studied Back in the very first chapter, it says, um, says basically in verse one, you are chosen 
And then verse 2 basically has some peripheral things and then it says to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And again, that Old Testament kind of terminology we saw in, in, in Numbers 24 or Exodus 24 when Moses brought the covenant down um, it's the only place in the Old Testament where the people were sprinkled with blood that I know of. And it says they divided the blood of the sacrifice into two bowls. Part of it went on the altar, which talked about God's dealing with your sin. But the people all said, we will obey. And it says Moses took the other bowl and sprinkled the people. And it seemed that the idea of sprinkling them with the blood was sealing that covenant on their part of God's not just covering your sins, but you're agreeing to live for him. And so it's interesting to me here, in the very beginning of 1 Peter, he says, you were chosen. That would be the part where God's um, choosing you. And But the other half of it is that you were chosen to obey and sprinkled with that blood. It's sort of maybe reminiscent of what happened in Exodus 24. You've made this agreement. You've, just like the people of old, accepted the Lord, believed Him for salvation. But Peter says you've also, in essence, committed yourself to obey him, to follow him. And it talks throughout the book about, um, like in verse 14, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the formal, former lusts. And throughout the book of 1 Peter, it talks about, you have been put into a new category. You're the people of God. That has consequent things you should do. You now have agreed you need to obey, you need to follow, you need to put aside all these uh, sinful practices that used to be yours. And um, and so he goes through again and talks about you've been redeemed with this precious blood you know, of the Lord. And again, using Old Testament terminology. So we saw then throughout this book this emphasis on times are tough but you have been saved, you've got a wonderful salvation. And um, in chapter 2 we saw it says, He bore our sins in His body on the cross. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Again, all this Old Testament terminology, they're, they're like sheep. He bore our sins on the cross just as the lamb or, or animal bore the sin in the Old Testament. And then we saw that last week we got to the end of First Peter where it says, Be of sober spirit. Spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. And, and again, that idea, you're in tough times. But be sober, think clearly, be on the alert. Um, your adversary, the devil, he's out there to get you. He's going around seeking. He's prowling around seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. Understand, he says, okay, you're suffering. You're right. But he says, recognize that these experiences aren't unique to you. Other people have suffered. In the Old Testament, we have all sorts of people suffering. And he says, um, this isn't something that just is happening to you, but it's happened before, it's happening to others. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish you. 
That's all future. Doesn't say after a little while it's all going to get better here. It's basically after a little while when you go to meet the Lord and be with Him. That's when you're going to receive all these things. And again, it's hard, I think, for us to deal with that because we want now. We want answers now. We want life to be good now. And that's understandable. But that's that's just not the true to life. So, as we leave now, First uh, Peter, now we swing our way uh, towards Second Peter. And um, we're going to see a carrying on of some of these same ideas and some of them will switch. One person, when they were writing about this idea of suffering and following Christ's example, they said the patient endurance of injustice is part of God's plan for believers. It is an important feature of the true grace of God experienced by Peter's readers. And again, we want to think of grace as getting good things. Part of the idea of grace is going through suffering. And um, So now we, we move to Second uh, Peter and we change a few of the emphasis. One person, when they're talking about some of the similarities in, between First and Second Peter and differences, they wrote, uh, in, in First Peter, the Christian is the one under attack. In Second Peter, the gospel or the Christian hope is under attack. And they said, in First Peter, the attack against the church comes from without from unbelievers. In Second Peter, the attack against the church comes mostly from within, from those who at least profess to believe in the Lord Jesus. In First Peter, there is an emphasis on the believer's certain hope of glory and the return of Christ. In Second Peter, there is the certainty of condemnation of those who deny the gospel. In First Peter, the believer is to fix his hope on the glory yet to be revealed at the coming of the Lord. In Second Peter, the believer is tempted by false teachers to fix his hope on the present with its fleshly pleasures and to ignore the future. So in First Peter, it's told, fix your hope completely on that future thing. In Second Peter, as we'll see, we have the scoffers saying, where is the promise that is coming? Basically, he's not coming back. You don't need to worry about that. And it talks about these people, as we go through the book, they live for their pleasures, for their lusts, for their sensuality, for their greed, and they're trying to draw the people in. But they're doing all of that under the, the auspices of, of pretending to be Christian leaders. I mean, they want, they want to pull people into an ungodly lifestyle, but they're not saying, you know, forget Christianity. They're claiming to be leaders. And I think that's where I was referring to earlier a little bit of Paul and Peter are going to be gone and many of the people who are going to jump into the gap and want to um, replace them aren't godly people. They're going to be false teachers, false prophets. So again, we, we see that First Peter dealt a lot with how to deal with persecution from outside the church. Second Peter deals more with how to deal with false teachers and evildoers 
within the church. And um, if you look at Second Peter, the first chapter. He's writing to these people in the first chapter and he says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So he says, You've got the same kind of faith. You receive the same thing that I have. Um, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I think it's important. And he says, verses that many of us have thought about before, he says, that he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. And I think, again, in the context of these books, these false teachers are going to come and often they're going to say, guess what? You don't have the whole story. I've got some new stuff to tell you. You've got a little, you know, it's going to be a little different than you heard it before. So I think Peter, partly why this is here is he's trying to emphasize you've got everything you need. Like it says, everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing left. You're not missing something. We don't need a new teacher to come and say, Psst, guess what? They didn't. Paul and Peter didn't tell you everything. Well, that does fill you in on the, fill in some of the gaps. Let's read between the lines. So I think Peter's right off the bat emphasizing, before he even talks about the false teachers, you've got everything you need. It's here. And he's going to point to what that is, is, and he mentions here, the true knowledge of him. He uses that phrase several times here. Look at verse 8. For these qualities are yours and increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful, in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, look at two, chapter 2, verse 20. Um, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the wor- world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them. And at the very end of the book, last verse, chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory. I think that's not accidental because your false teachers are going to come and say, we've got some new knowledge to give you. And Peter's saying, you got everything you need, rest in the true knowledge, not this false stuff that these deceivers are going to try to palm off on you. And you know, obviously we see in our world today, there's a lot of, I think, false teachers out there and who are uh, giving... Um, false things to people in the name of God. And I believe this is again partly why um, if you look in chapter 1 verse 16 Peter is going to talk about and we'll see in the weeks to come for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the implication is going to be these false teachers are going to give you cleverly devised tales. But he says, guess what? We were eyewitnesses. He goes on and says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
And in, in the passage, it goes on and says, listen to him. And so I think, again, Peter's saying, unlike these false people coming, I actually was with the Lord. I was my witness on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he goes on basically and says, but that's not enough. He says, even beyond that, he says, I not only, it's not just that I heard these things, he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So he says, the real thing you've got is the word of God. And guess what? He's going to make clear here, that doesn't come, some guy didn't just think it up. That prophetic word you have is from God himself. And in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So again, he's laying the framework, the groundwork, I think, that you know, you've got everything you need in chapter 1. You know, you've got what we gave to you. You've got the words of the prophets. It's all been made sure. And then from that, he's going to launch into, here's the danger in chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will inter secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And he, and he starts giving characteristics of these false teachers. Not holy, wonderful men of God. He says, many will follow their sensuality. And in verse 3, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. And then he goes on and talks about the sure condemnation for these people coming from God. But these people are going to rise up, he says, you know, just like Paul in Acts 28, remember with the Ephesian elders when he was leaving them, said, I don't think we're going to meet again. And he exhorted the elders, says, but guess what? One of your main tasks is false wolves are going to come in among you. Protect the flock. And Peter here is in essence saying that. You've got God's word. Be true to that. And then he's going to launch into for a couple chapters here basically talking about but false teachers are coming. You're going to have to be strong and watch out for them. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, false prophets and false teachers. And he talks about that. But then jump over to chapter 3. For this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he's basically saying, I've written you one letter. This is the second one. I want to drive home again. Why am I writing to you? I'm writing so that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. So he's saying, like he referred to earlier, they got the idea of the Old Testament and the prophets. He says, I want to remind you, you've got that. And then he says, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he's basically saying to them, here's what you've got to rest on. Not these false teachers and what they have to say, You've got the words of Scripture from the Old Testament. You've got the words now of the Lord that are given to you through the apostles. And I think part of what he's going to talk about is at the end of the book, if you flip over there, he starts by saying in chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. All these people are coming wanting to mess you up, wanting you to follow their sensuality, their greed, all these other things. He says, I want you to be found spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord 
as salvation because these people are going to say God's never coming back. He says, don't listen to them. God's just being patient. It's not He's not delaying because he's not coming back. But he says, just as also, and here I think, and I think Paul's probably gone and he's making a reference here to Paul. He says, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. So here, you know, we're not going to get into it, but I think basically Peter is praising Paul and saying, Paul wrote to you about some of these same things, and Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. So I think these false teachers, these false prophets, perverted and distorted things in the Old Testament. And I think the implication is they're going to do the same thing with my writings, Paul's writings, says, and the other scriptures. So again, he's warning them, I'm leaving. Here's what you've got. You've got God's word. You've got the Old Testament. You've got the teachings of Jesus himself given to you through the apostles. So he's laying out this picture back in chapter 3 where he says in verse 3 know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come but these aren't mockers so much like unbelievers these are people claiming to be believers but they want to distort them these are mockers of, of what they believe people that want to in verse 4 saying where is the promise of his coming and so um, they're claiming he's not really coming back and um, in verse 8 he says but do not let this one fact escape your notice beloved that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness but is patient toward you these people are basically saying where is the promise of his coming you know all those promises you say you're claiming eh, you can't count on them you can't count on God you know, he's not really going to come through. And um, Peter's um, refuting that and saying these people will distort things. And he ends the book by basically saying in verse 17 of the last chapter, and this I think is somewhat reminiscent. Remember he said in, in 1 Peter, he ended by saying, stand firm. He said, be on guard against the devil. Stand firm. Well, here he says in verse 17, Therefore you, beloved, knowing this beforehand, he says, guess what? When this stuff comes, don't be surprised. I'm telling you it's coming. He says, knowing this beforehand, he says, Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. He ended First Peter by saying, Stand firm. He in Second Peter by saying, "Be on guard, lest you fall from that firmness, lest you fall from your steadfastness." And he ends by saying, "But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." And again, as, as I mentioned earlier, that idea of true knowledge—the knowledge that you get from Scripture, not the knowledge you're going to get from the false teachers. So again, I think in these two books. Peter is a, a man with a pastor's heart who knows he's leaving. He cares about his sheep. And uh, I think 
you perhaps could wrap up the theme of Second Peter is beware of false teachers who skew grace and deny the Lord's return. These are people who are going to try to twist things. They're not people who say, not unbelievers. These are believers coming in, just like Paul warned. It's the people coming in a sense in sheep's clothing in the midst of things. And today there's many men, quote, in pulpits around the world claiming to represent God who are skewing God's message, who are false teachers, who are leading people astray. And, and Peter here, as someone who's leaving, is saying in First Peter, you've had tough times, but lean on God's grace, lean on his promises. And he says uh, in Second Peter, um, you know, I'm leaving. God's told me I'm leaving. But I want you to know, you know, basically, here's what you need to do. To hang tough. Lean on God's word. Uh, you've got everything you need. When these people show up and he says here, I'm warning you ahead of time. You're knowing this beforehand. When they show up and say, you know, there's some new stuff you need to know. You know, you don't have the full picture. And Peter says, don't fall for that. You've got God's word. You know, both the Old Testament and the scriptures you've received through the apostles. You know, grow in that. Grow in the true knowledge. Not in this um, greedy, sensual, perverted stuff that people are going to be teaching you. And so that would be my exhortation today for all of us as we look at these books and just in our lives to always try to be looking for the true knowledge, not not falling. Uh, it, we're told many places in the New Testament about people, you know, like being driven by the waves and double-minded and sort of they fall for everything. Christians shouldn't be known as gullible. Christians should be sharp-thinking people who can discern the times, discern, discern what's going on, and, and understand truth. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for Peter. We thank you for the books that you penned, your Spirit gave us through him. And we ask again, this. we thank you for First Peter and look forward to studying Second Peter, that we can be those who um, search for the the riches of your grace and the true knowledge you have for us. In your son's name, amen. amen. Let's close with number 157.